to start off today's show by asking the WIHI audience why you think mental health issues have mostly been running in the background of improvement and safety work in the acute care setting, not highlighted nearly enough. Do you agree that's the case? And if so, how come? As I say this, I acknowledge the huge shift in mental health services in recent decades focused on deinstitutionalization, new and better medications, less dependence on hospital first, and more reliance on community-based programs and supports, outpatient interventions, and treatment. Still, we look to hospitals as much as ever when there are psychiatric emergencies and when an inpatient bed is the best way to help someone in the grips of a mental health crisis stay safe, receive continuous care, and regain some measure of stability. And the good news is important work is going on in the hospital to improve the quality and safety of what transpires in both these instances. So that's what we're talking about on today's WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're in our sixth year of coming to you biweekly, and also you can catch us later on IHI.org on, on iTunes. We call ourselves an online audio talk show, and we're coming to you from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, the guests who've come together for today's show are a brave brunch, bunch, excuse me, indeed, in part because no matter how cogent their remarks, there's so much more to mental health safety, indeed to mental health, than we'll be able to cover today. But this won't be our only opportunity. So onward. I want to also note that this week is Mental Illness Awareness Week, sponsored by NAMI, or the National Alliance for Mental Illness, October 9th. That's today also happens to be declared National Depression Screening Day. And you can learn more about all of this at www.nami.org. So I'm going to introduce our guests in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He's here in the studio with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about all the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask your panelists and our qu your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor in a few minutes. This allows our panelists and colleagues on WebEx to see all your questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a slower or less reliable Internet connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know, and I'll flash that slide right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take the time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. Thanks so much, John. And as always, I like to remind people, if you like to use Twitter, if you like to tweet, please do so either during or after the program. We thank you for using at the IHI. That's our handle in your tweets. All right, some brief introduction of our guests. You can find out more about each of them on our web pages. Anna Roth out on the West Coast. Yesterday she was on the East Coast. Anna Roth is the CEO of Contra Costa Regional Medical Center and Health Centers, a public hospital system in the San Francisco Bay Area. Anna has spearheaded improvement efforts throughout her system and sees the inclusion, inclusion I should say, of patients, families, and the community as essential to transformation. Welcome, Anna. Thank you, Madge. Wonderful to Glad have Glad to be here today. Terrific. One of those family members is Teresa Pasquini, a community volunteer and advocate for improving mental health systems everywhere. Teresa is a family member of a son and brother with serious mental illnesses, and based on these experiences, she has a passion to improve care for those who suffer without treatment and recovery. So glad you're here with us, Teresa. Welcome. Thank you so much, Madge. It's a pleasure to be with you. Wonderful. 
All right, uh, Richard Wall, whoops, i got to go closer to home. Well, we'll head over to Connecticut. Also on the phone is James O'Day. We're going to call him Jim. He's a clinical psychologist, hospital administrator, and the regional director of the Behavioral Health Services for the Hartford Healthcare East region. Jim has also been actively involved in patient safety and quality initiatives. Welcome, Jim. Hi, Matt. Thanks very much. Okay. Richard Wall has devoted his professional career of over 35 years to the field of behavioral health. He is currently president of Princeton House Behavioral Health and senior vice president of Princeton Healthcare System in Princeton, New Jersey. He'll tell you all about that coming right up. Welcome, Richard. Nice to be here. Thank you. All right. And also on the phone and who's going to kick things off for us is uh, in Vermont is Kelly McCutcheon Adams, who has been a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement since 2004. Her primary focuses are critical and end-of-life care, and Kelly brings her experience as a medical social worker to all she does. Thanks, Kelly. Welcome as well. Thanks, Madge. All right. So, Kelly, let's start with you. Um, perhaps you could pick up on some of my remarks about bringing issues more to the foreground here, uh, whether we're talking inpatient or outpatient, but in this case today we're talking more about the inpatient world. Why does that matter, and what are some of the themes and issues that IHI uh, would like to help out with uh, that will be reflected on WIHI and some of the other work uh, we're involved in right now? Thanks. Thanks, Madge. Um, well, as Madge said, I've been with IHI for about 10 years, and I get to dabble my toes in a lot of different work. And over the summer, I was asked to put together an IHI expedition, which is a five- to seven-session virtual program that, in our case, will start in December. And the assignment was psychiatric safety, which sort of started me down a little bit of a rabbit hole because it was, well, is it psychiatric safety? Is it mental health safety? Is it behavioral health safety? Um, and so I had to start exploring how different high-performing organizations were tackling these issues, which gave me the fortunate experience of talking with everyone who's on our call today. And I think what I discovered as I was working through that process is that um, people who are tackling these issues and really facing the full complexity of them are not doing it in a fragmented way or a siloed way. And they have a really strong realization of the incredible vulnerability that people who are in psychiatric crisis face when they need to seek help. Um, And so through my conversations with our guests today and others, I started to think about all the different ways that this issue of safety could be looked at. Um, And there's many other ways that this could be sliced and diced, but I sort of started to think about flow issues, the way in which... um, Poor flow through acute care settings can create safety issues. The physical environment, um, particularly for patients who are at risk of harming themselves. The ways in which medications need to be um, administered, prescribed, tracked, you know, all the different issues that come up with medications. And staff preparedness, um, along with partnership, which is why I'm so excited to get to hear from Anna and Teresa today. And so I really keyed in and have been so struck, and I know I have a lot more to learn, but just about the very complex um, interplay of all of these issues and that it's important to be thinking about them um, collectively. And just one other comment I would make before we move on is that my previous work around safety has had a lot to do with things like nosocomial infections. which, of course, can bring a tremendous amount of harm uh, to a patient. But what's been so striking to me and starting to learn more and more about dealing with mental health safety issues is that when you are dealing with someone who is in crisis and you're focused as a clinician on their safety, but they, because of their illness, are actively working to harm themselves. So I see this sort of double effect. There's the harm of what the system can create but then there's the harm of what the illness can create as well. So those are just brief thoughts, but um, I'm looking forward to continuing to learn more um, as we go forward in diving into this topic. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it very much. All right. We're going to turn now to Jim O'Day. Jim, on IHI's website, I teased your participation um, in the program by referring to your mention of a three-legged stool 
that guides the acute care mental health work at Hartford Healthcare Behavioral Health Network. Um, but I think you feel it's a, a stool that others uh, would find helpful as well. So tell us first a little bit about the organization you're a part of and then this three-legged stool, and welcome again. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much, uh, Madge. And it's a real pleasure to be on the panel today with these other guests and really excited about the participation from such a large group. So I'm a clinical psychologist by trade, and I work for an organization called Hartford Healthcare. So the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford Healthcare is the largest provider of behavioral health care in the state of Connecticut. And there is a full range of both inpatient care and a full continuum of crisis, ambulatory, outpatient services throughout our network. And we're spread throughout the state of Connecticut, so well over 220 inpatient beds, along with a very, very extensive range of partial hospital programs and ambulatory services, as well as crisis services in all of our acute care hospital emergency departments. And I appreciate you bringing that up. I, you know, I think of this, I use the three-legged stool as a metaphor, and it's a metaphor that I think illustrates the equal importance of multiple factors when we talk about safety on an inpatient unit. So I've been in this business for well over 30 years, and I know early on in my career as an administrator, I was very preoccupied with the physical plant uh, side of the world, and I think that is a critically important part of it and I'm not going to spend much time talking about the physical plant because Richard is really an expert in this regard and has, has a lot to offer. So I'll leave the, the P, the physical plant, uh, to Richard. The two other parts of the stool, though, that I will spend a couple minutes talking about include process and people. And I think process is, is often underutilized is a key part of a safety principle on an inpatient psychiatric unit. And people can sometimes get a little discouraged or even downright cynical about the use of policies and procedures and having the right kind of processes in place. I will tell you that my experience has taught me that it's critically important for us to have a really clear process and how we help our patients and our staff. And the backbone of that in most inpatient psychiatric unit is known as a level system. Many of your participants know all about level systems, so I'm not going to go through that in any detail. But essentially what they do is that it's a tool that is used to assess and determine what kind of supports a patient may need to be safe and to be respected and to participate in their care at the highest level of independence. And during a typical six to eight day course of treatment in some of our inpatient settings, that's a very dynamic process. That's going to be fluid. It's going to change. And what you need to have is a really good set of tools that our staff can use to really inform the decision about what's the right level of support a patient might need. And those are assessments completed by physicians, by social workers, by nursing staff, social workers, mental health workers, and the patients themselves. And so the with our patients and helping us create a partnership around having a safe environment is really critical, which leads me to the third part of the stool, if you will. So if you have the right physical plant, and Richard will talk a lot about that, and you have good processes that you can count on, the last part is about the people. And it's both, as I said, our patients and our staff. And what we need is pe people that are engaged and fully committed and recognize that fundamentally in a hospital environment, our first priority has to be patient safety and that people are held accountable and also really see that the use of the tools and the policies that we have are there to promote safety. They're not tasks that need to be done, but instead they inform a culture of safety. And what we've tried to do over the course of the last several years throughout Hartford Healthcare is really build on that culture of safety. So if I've got three legs, my physical plant, my process, and my people, it sits on something. And it sits on the foundation of a culture of safety. And what we've tried to do is really take the science of safety that we've learned from other disciplines and other industries. Often people talk about aviation, the nuclear power industry, is a way to identify what are the right kind of tools that our staff need as a way to make sure that we're not working just harder but that we're working smarter and using the tools of safety science to really build a safe environment for our patients. So 
that's my three-legged stool. I'm sure there's other ways that we might describe it around people, process, and physical plant. But it's a way that I think our staff can relate to and engage with uh, how we continue to make it better. Thanks, Jim. And I'm sure folks will have um, questions uh, asking you to perhaps elaborate on all of this. Maybe I'm just going to ask a real quick one before we turn to Anna and Teresa, which is, can you provide an example uh, maybe of something that has benefited from a process where perhaps that wasn't the case before? And if uh, I don't want to put you on the spot on that, but I'm, I'm curious kind of what would might be a, almost a before and after in terms of a process that has helped a great deal? So, so, the best, so thank you for asking that. I, I think the best example is that we start every day with a safety huddle, and each day staff come up with new things that we didn't think of the day before. And one example with that be is we had a circumstance just recently this week where we had a replacement staff member who came in from our housekeeping area who wasn't accustomed to generally working on the inpatient program and brought her cart onto the unit to kind of help us on our the care of our patients. And she brought some things on to the unit that one of our mental health workers identified would compromise the safety of the inpatient program. And it was an opportunity for real-time consultation, education, um, but it's really about that's a real change in process, building in something where people are constantly preoccupied with how do we keep this place safe and are all, always having an eye toward that is the kind of thing that really makes a difference day in and day out. Okay, that's great. That's a perfect example. Thank you very much. All right, uh, think of uh, questions uh, for everyone as we're going along here. I also want to uh, mention that um, periodically we'll be putting, we are, have some links in here that reflect uh, all our slides today, and we'll probably pop in some other links for you. Uh, Cambridge Health Alliance here in the Boston area and the Mass Department of Mental Health have some interesting tools that we became aware of uh, that are kind of patient self-assessments of their own situations. Uh, what you need to know about me to help me stay safe in this environment. And we'll, we're going to throw up uh, those links as well in just a few minutes. All right, Anna and Teresa, I'm pretty much going to turn it over uh, to the two of you. Anna tells me that Teresa and she do this a lot. They talk a lot. That's because they've been working together for a long time. It's not every day that we do have a hospital system CEO and a family member who uses that system as guests on WIHI. But boy, is this something I hope happens more often. And you did get to know each other under harder circumstances because what it was like because of what it was like for Teresa and her son to deal with Contra Costa during um, emergency psych emergencies in particular. So, but the, that led to a really important partnership, and that's what I'd love it if you tell us. So, take it away. So thanks, Madge. This is Teresa Pasquini, and um, it is a it's a pleasure to join you all, um, and uh, also to join Anna, who is um, such an inspirational leader and mentor to me, um, and who has really um, helped me um, to um, understand the healthcare system uh, in a in a much better way, and um, and has really helped build help us build our partnership and, and put the humanity um, into our partnership, help, help put the humanity into our partnership. Um, and um, it was actually uh, back in 2009. We've been working together since 2009. And actually, I wasn't, um, Anna and I did not know one another um, before I was invited to a um, Kaizen event in 2009. And I was one of um, the first I was one of two family members, the first two family members that were, um, quote, let in. Um, I know one of the former um, leaders of our system said, look, we let them in and the, and the roof didn't cave in um, at the end of that week. Um, that week was um, in 2009. It was a lean event um, that um, they did want to um, consider um, behavioral health patients. And so um, I was invited in. Prior to um, that week, I would say that I um, – is I would be uh, referred to as a rabble rouser. Um, there are a lot of people that um, um, probably were afraid to have me in the room, but um, 
Contra Costa took a risk, invited me in, and out of that, um, we formed a deep partnership that um, continues to this day. Um, so, um, and it was actually, um, I, you know, I, I refer to myself a lot as a recovering angry mom. And that anger um, was based on probably um, 40 years. I actually have about 40 years of pain um, attached to the mental health system. I have an older brother. Um, my first defining memory of mental illness came um, when my um, older brother jumped off one of the San, um, one of the Bay Area bridges here and survived with a broken back. He had driven over every Bay Area bridge and um, settled on the Richmond San Rafael Bridge and um, climbed to the top rail, climbed over, held on, um, and re released his grip. And luckily, his feet hit first, um, and he was rescued from a fisherman out of the bay um, and fought to live. And um, back then, there were um, there was a lot more access, actually, to, um, to care and inpatient care, more inpatient beds. He received a lot of great, great um, care um, and went on to recover and become, um, get his master's, become uh, a teacher in uh, Contra Costa here in, in Richmond in one of our poor districts. Um, and he's a real hero and a recovery success story. However, my son, Danny, um, uh, was, has not been so lucky. And um, my son has had over 50 involuntary holds and has been um, conserved by Contra Costa County for um, over 13 years and has actually, I believe, touched the psych emergency system um, up to 80, uh, 80 times, I think, he's been in there. And so um, that, that created an angry mom. But it was the partnership that helped take that anger wall down. Um, and it was Anna actually introducing me to um, somebody, I think somebody she was hiring in the C-suite, um, as this is Teresa Pasquini. She is the mother of somebody our system has harmed, and we've harmed her too. Um, that I knew that we um, had, that, you know, just made me recognize that there was um, an ability to, um, my, my anger wall went down and, and the trust was, was, was established immediately. So um, I had, not, I had not, not experienced that humanity connection with other leaders prior to that. Um, so that first week taught me that nobody comes to work to harm um, and that it's the system that's designed to harm and it's the system that must change. And so um, we did, we did start meeting weekly and um, looking to, we recognized that our, um, our 600 patients um, were being diverted through, through um, the regular ED, um, behavioral health psychiatric patients were going through the regular ED and we, um, our partnership worked in partnership with the leaders of our system to um, reopen the psych emergency door that had been closed five years prior um, for regulatory purposes. So you're seeing a before and after picture here. Um, before the, um, the door was bare and, and unwelcoming and um, as a result of um, several um, uh, lean events, um, we put our stake in the ground to reopen that, that psych emergency door. And um, this was painted, the, the words welcome, hope, and recovery were this design was designed by um, former psychiatric patients who actually chose the colors and the words, and they actually painted. I think Anna came in on her birthday and helped paint this. I was a part of the painting session, but um, um, it was a proud, proud day for our community, and it was a clear community celebration, which I think you see on the next slide, um, that you, um, where we, we opened, we opened the door with a ribbon cut, cutting ceremony. Um, and, um, and so now those 600 patients that were, um, I think that the numbers have risen since then, um, but now those 600 patients that said, we don't want to go through the regular ED, we want to go to the right door at the right time um, and, and, what, and get what we came for and not be diverted. So, um, so. And thank you. Anna. Hi, Anna. I want to thank you, uh, Teresa. And Teresa has written a lot, um, uh, continues to write a lot, uh, and has a website, works on a website treatment before um, 
wait, what's the, I'm, I'm about to say the wrong tragedy, name. Tragedy. Tre- excuse me. <laughs> Treatmentbeforetragedy.org. Anna has written a lot, too. We're going to capture a lot uh, more about uh, this this partnership and this story. We'll, we'll have some of those links uh, in the resource guide that we post to the website tomorrow as well. But thank you, Teresa, uh, for capturing part of, uh, I know, a very long journey. Anna, uh, let's hear from you. And I guess uh, in the few minutes that you have, uh, maybe just to help us fill in a little better, what was, uh, apart from the issue of um, going through the regular uh, ED, um, the, the psych uh, one wasn't, wasn't um, operating at that time, and now it is again, what else was the experience like uh, for, that you felt needed to be looked at uh, in a very hard way? Thank you, Madge, and I, I just want to echo that it's, it's always a privilege to join people in this conversation, and, and no, never more um, for me than to be able to join with Teresa in this conversation. Um, so what I was finding and what, what it was like, what really, in summary, what we were finding is delays in the right kind of care, um, people coming to our hospital in need of behavioral health care, and us, us moving them through a medical emergency department, uh, which resulted in really, you know, delaying them from getting the right care at the right time because of our own processes. We, we, we started to do things like, I, I just want to say, we went out and started to look at what was really happening in the system. You know, so I would say a simple uh, message to other leaders is go and see what's really happening look around and you saw the picture of our door. Um, it, this was not a welcoming door. This is not a place you'd want to go. Um, and so we started to walk around and, under, and look at and see the stark disparities within our own system. And, and it took a lot of, um, it was a difficult walk to take as a CEO to see what kind of signals we were sending and messages that were literally printed or not printed on our walls. Um, so we accepted that we needed to improve this. We needed to remove delays. We needed to find out from patients and their loved ones, what kind of care do you want? And we needed to, to make a commitment to the community that we would transform our system. A couple of sort of founding principles is that we had to accept that there's a long legacy of stigma, of shutting out, and of harm for mental health patients because it's not something people like to talk about. So that was sort of the first thing we needed to just get over, accept that it's there and make a commitment to overcome that. Bring patients and families in in an authentic way. Put them on your improvement teams. And in the end, um, as the leaders create space, not lead the space, but create space for authentic partnership, um, led by and designed by and led by patients and family members. Um, We did not have competency in doing that, so we had to... um, we had to make a commitment and we had to learn how to do that. And finally, I would just say this led, this change really led to, and I know we can talk about this a little bit later or in future discussions, but the work that we did in mental health really led to us asking ourselves as a whole system, are we welcoming people across our whole system in general? And we transformed um, some of our core policies like our visitation policy and um, some other policies, we, we literally got rid of those that, that language and those signals, and we've now embraced fully welcoming, and that includes welcoming patients and their loved ones into all decision-making, into our facilities, into everything we do every day. Um, and so that, that's sort of my summary, and I will, I'll just hand it back to you, Madge, and see if there's anything more specific people might want to talk about um, a little bit later. That sounds terrific. Thank you both. Thank you, Anna, and thank you, Teresa. And uh, just a heads up as we turn to Richard. Now, Richard, we're thrilled to have Richard for a zillion reasons, but one of them is because he has had this opportunity, uh, essentially, to take an older psychiatric facility, which was first built as a nursing home and turn it into something state-of-the-art, and that led to tremendous uh, research and knowledge about the physical environment. And um, we're, we're heading over our 2.30 p.m. mark, at least here in on the East Coast. Bear with us, folks. I think you're, you're going to be thrilled that we've really had everyone with us today, and we will get to your questions and comments as well. Richard, thank you. Thanks, uh, Madge. I, I've been part of behavioral health uh, from my career, and I started at Princeton House Behavioral Health in 1990. Um, 
Princeton Behavioral Health is a part of a medical uh, system, community mental, a community uh, medical center, and uh, psychiatric hospital and uh, continuum of care. But as uh, was mentioned, over the year, when I got here, it was 20 years old, and it was originally a nursing home, and it had begun to evolve as a psychiatric facility. So I was successful, fortunately, in being able to grow a lot of the business, and we found ourselves with increased volumes of patients and began to see that the building was really not uh, safe. It was originally an open building, and it wasn't really built at all with any psych safety in mind. So everything came to a head when in uh, 2000 we were given the opportunity to add uh, 21 beds for involuntary patients, and we actually took the opportunity to build what amounted to 57 new beds in 35,000 square feet of space. And we then went on after that was finished and we fully renovated another 65,000 square feet of space. So our 100, basically 100,000 square foot building has been completely renovated, either completely rebuilt, built from scratch or, or renovated in the last 10 years. So in order to do that, we had to really immerse ourselves in the, in the uh, aspects of design and it, it was a, a, a very uh, important uh, opportunity for us to be able to figure out how to create a building that was at the same time comfortable for patients and, 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 and be one that would reduce the risks to the extent that we could do that. Now, I can tell you, as a, as a um, looking back, patients come into our facility, and I've heard it referred to as a hotel. So it's kind of funny because it is a psychiatric unit. It is locked. We use psychiatric, uh, many psychiatric safe um, devices, but the general feel of it somehow is that it's welcoming and it's comfortable, and patients really like to come here. So it's uh, we've, and I'm, I'm saying this because I've heard this over many many years, and I, I just I believe that that part is true. So I'd like to talk just a little bit about what types of things we had to take a look at. And I'm, I really am creating a list here just to show you the extent to which our team had to really consider every aspect of what we were trying to build in a hospital. And if you've been in a psychiatric hospital, I would dare say that, that somewhere along the line, somebody went through the, um, the, um, the list and, and considered the, the risks of hanging, the risks of cutting, the risks of elopement, the risks of patient harm to other patients or patient harm to staff, the risk of falls, the annoyance of sound. And uh, to that end, one of the early decisions we made was that our entire building is camera monitored. And I, I don't want to dwell on that, but that's, a, that's an aspect that has really proved very helpful. We had to look at key areas of our, of our patient rooms and patient common areas, and, and we looked at beds which might seem like it's not that, uh, that much of, a, of an issue, but you have to take a look at whether or not you plan to do any type of restraint activity in the bed or whether you might ever have to be called upon to do that. Is the bed, some, is the bed something that's, that's um, fixed to the floor or is it something that's movable? Spend a tremendous amount of time looking at doors, and this is an area of a possible hanging hazard. And we looked at, we considered pressure alarms, and we considered possibly changing the angles of the doors, considered not having doors, and all of these things led to um, decisions on how to build doors. Uh, hardware, along with that, is extremely critical. And um, there, I see there are pictures flashing here, and these are not necessarily in the order I'm speaking, but I'll, I'll touch all these things. Sorry, we, we uh, sort of grouped them all here, and you can uh, we just mention, describe each one if you'd like, sure. We have the door, I think, yeah. yeah. Well, the, hard, the, the, hard, the hardware you're showing now is, uh, is bathroom hardware, and that's a, that's a, there's some key areas of safety. Obviously, bathrooms are an area where if the patient is behind a closed door, all kinds of, of things can happen. So this, these show shower um, fixtures, uh, faucets, and it shows um, handrails, which you can't loop anything through, and it shows the top of a mirror, so it shows you that there's no way to loop anything in the mirror. On the right, you see that the patient room, I, I think, looks inviting and, and uh, uncomfortable, but keep in mind that everything in there is a psychiatric safe 
um, application. So then the other, the other big area is a seclusion room. Unfortunately, part of a psychiatric hospital is a, is a seclusion or restraint area, and a number of decisions had to be made as to whether or not we would use windows. If we used windows in, what type of, of uh, material would it be? Would it be glass? Would it be uh, plexiglass? How, would it be reinforced? Um, you have to look at all types of areas um, in terms of sharpness, making sure that everything is, is uh, patient and staff safe because you have a lot of physical activity in those areas, including floor type. Uh, how you cover the floors is extremely critical whether you use carpeting or whether you want to go with a hard floor. Uh, falls are a big deal in hospitals, and they are in psychiatric settings. We do a lot of work around minimizing falls, and we have a very good track record. We happen to use carpeting. Carpeting has a disadvantage in that it wears and it, it stains and it has some, some downsides. Um, you have to really decide in your setting what it, which one is the, is the, the better application. And... Um, uh, I mentioned that a, a significant amount of time was spent in the baths, and I think that creating a very, very patient, sa uh, safe bathroom is really sort of a trick. But fortunately, there are a number of um, uh, places now that sell uh, psych-safe uh, fixtures, and uh, we were we did this so long ago. We we dealt with an organization that really was one of the first, but there are many now that are out there that are able to um, handle this from, from all the different aspects. There is a manual I'll mention here that is very, very important, and if, you, if you're considering this for your own facility, you might want to take a look at it. It, it comes through the New York Department of Mental Health, and it's, it's a guideline for building a, sa a safe psychiatric setting, materials and systems. It's located on their website. We took a look at that, and we used that quite a bit. That's a lot of information that's been assembled in one spot, and I think it really is an excellent kind of crash course in how to do this. I'd like to just uh, close by commenting that all of these items that I just mentioned certainly can build a, uh, a, a psych-safer environment, although nothing is ever completely safe, but ultimately, as has been said before, one of the only ways that you can really take this all the way is to have a real commitment to the culture of safety and to make sure that to that end, your staff are involved in reviewing any activity which is a threat to uh, patients or staff. And to, the, to that end, we do, we do a tremendous amount with an active performance improvement component, and we do what we call root cause analysis which I think many are familiar with, but it's not just for a, a, a sentinel event or a death, but it's for, it's for events that unfold that are threatening, that are mistakes, that could be tragic and, and are, you know, are caught. We do this routinely, and it's done in a blameless uh, way where we try to just understand more about our system and how things are uh, unraveled. And we, we apply that on a regular basis going forward, and we're, we're happy to say that we have, I think, a very solid uh, culture of safety in our hospital. So I thank you very much for your attention. Yeah, to this. thank you so much, Richard. And uh, Richard was uh, trying to paint a picture uh, of, of some a place and uh, features uh, of a building. We, we just had uh, some of the fixtures in a patient room. I think if you uh, Google the website, um, for uh, his facility, Princeton um, House and Behavioral Health, you probably can see more, and maybe we can even get some more uh, images uh, from you, Richard, and thank you for the uh, reference of the New York Department of Mental Health. We'll see if we can't find that um, link and throw it into the chat as well. I do want to remind okay. anybody who's joining uh, the program again just by phone, uh, that's fewer and fewer of you, but still, uh, everything that we're talking about, you can email info at IHI org and you can get all the slides uh, that we're sharing right now. So I, just before we go to um, questions and your comments and people are, go ahead and type away anyone uh, who's uh, with us today. Um, does anybody want to comment on anything else anyone has said? Uh, just want to give you and anyone that opportunity. Jim or uh, Anna, anybody? All right. Not quite there yet. 
One thought that I had, uh, Anna, and I, you know, just maybe before we go to the Q&A, is years ago, well, not that many years ago, but some years ago, you and I were started talking about um, psychiatric safety and the hospital environment, and you talked a little bit about the training and looking also at uh, what happens in these crisis situations that also involves the police and mobile psych units and EMTs. Is there anything, uh, is, is that kind of a part of the whole system that you're, you and Teresa are also um, part of uh, working on? Um. Thanks, Madge. Thank you for asking. Absolutely uh, central to our the system we're working on. In, in fact, um, Teresa just last week was at the NQF with our one of our um, lieutenants from the sheriff's department, who is a key partner um, in helping us transform our behavioral health services as well as all of our other services. Really, um, but but I just want to say that to back up when we started to look at. Um, transforming our psychiatric emergency, and I saw in the chat box somebody said, why was it closed? Um, it wasn't closed, per se. It's still We still did psychiatric evaluations there, but it was closed to ambulance traffic because we, um, we were directing everybody through the medical ER to do um, medical screening exams, the MSCs, and we, um, we thought that that's what we needed to do, and what we challenged that thought, and we have since um, accepted, we've begun accepting people directly to psychiatric emergency. It, through that process, one of the things we said was, all right, well, let's start doing our improvement work. As you heard from Teresa, we were doing lean. Let's start doing our lean work. Let's find out exactly what happens at the front door of the ER or the psych emergency, and let's improve the process all the way through the whole system through dish. And Teresa said, well, wait a minute. It doesn't start at the hospital. It actually starts at my house when I pick up the phone and I, you know, call for help. And that help often, in fact, almost exclusively comes in form, the form of law enforcement. And so that is really what, where we started to say, wait a minute, this entire care experience includes a whole other set of people. That's law enforcement, that's the um, ambulance, you know, crews that come out or the, you know, emergency medical services uh, personnel that come out. Those people are key piece of the care experience. And what Teresa told us is, you know, I'm the primary care provider up until the crisis hits. Then when I call you, then you all tell me, you know, you can't talk to me because of HIPAA and now I'm out, but you're going to call me, you know, in a couple of days and say, come and assume your responsibilities again. And we realized how fragmented and how broken that approach was. So we did bring in law enforcement, uh, emergency service personnel, family members, community members, when we did our first design session. And we have since followed that up again with very recently, uh, three, four years later, we've now just done another sort of larger scale uh, whole day planning session with police, uh, emergency personnel, um, members of the community, even reached farther this time to really think about the, the experience of care across the spectrum that people like Teresa and her family are really experiencing every day. And the hospital and the health centers, we are a small piece of that. Okay, thank you very, very much. All right, I see what you all did. You all went to Q&A instead of chat. <laughs> because you have that option as well. And even though, so now I see your questions, I was thinking, boy, what a quiet bunch. Not at all. All right. So I'm going to try and run through these as fast as I can. Uh, somebody has asked uh, kind of w whether there's a sort of philosophy uh, kind of underpinning um, on in terms of the general view about uh, balancing safety precautions and autonomy. Uh, for patients. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll go back to you, Jim, uh, so we don't forget about you at all. And, and ha let's start that off with you. Well, thank you very much. Well, I think on this panel, we have real experts in that, in both Teresa and Anna. And, and what I would say is the balance is about involving people in the solutions. And I, I think if there's one change, you asked us to comment on some of those broader themes. What I think is so critical, there's a number of things. One 
is the what we, Anna described as the gemba, which is you got to get out of a conference room and you have to go into patient rooms and you need to go to the emergency room and you have to, as they say in lean world, go see. You have to be close to where the work is done to really understand what safety means. You can't do this work from a conference room with a gathering and a committee. And, and the other part is the people who are going to go see have to include the people who are affected by the care. And that includes the staff members and certainly patients and family. That, I think, is the real expert around stuff that we would say, oh, we think we know what the risks are. And then you have people in a room who've been down this road and they'll say, well, here's a couple of things that I used to think about that you probably would not have contemplated. So I think the more we engage all of our staff and all of our patients in the improvement work, the better off we're going to be. Okay, thank you very much. Let me get at uh, a very specific question, then I'm going to go to a, a sort of broader one. Richard, single versus two-bedded rooms. Pros and our cons. Rooms are, our rooms are all two-bedded. Um, they're, they're, yeah, pros and cons. Are, it, it really depends, I think, on the population that you serve. Uh, our, I'm part of a system that has a medical hospital that was just rebuilt from the ground up also, and uh, they went with one patient to a room, which is considered state-of-the-art, and I think it's in, the, it's in the architectural guidelines that most states support now. So from a medical center perspective, that's what's expected. I think uh, I've seen psychiatric settings that have two to a room and one to a room, and I think there, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. I think... Uh, Honestly, a one-bedroom would be a very nice thing to have for some of your beds. And if, if I were to redo this, if I had a chance to do it again, I probably would add some smaller grouping of singles. We have a few, but they're, they're in big demand, and they usually end up for medically compromised patients as well. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I see people are now using chat as well, and maybe my team here in the studio can help me as I'm trying to look at the three screens at once here. All right, we have several questions that are asking about, uh, in, in so many ways, what if your psych unit, your psych emergency department, uh, what if things are more integrated? Maybe you don't have a dedicated psych unit um, and and perhaps not uh, a dedicated psych emergency department. I know there is a lot of discussion about that right now. Um, what is, are there particular things um, that can be addressed, are being addressed? Um, maybe Anna and uh, Teresa... Um, Perhaps, why don't we start with you? And somebody said that they were sorry they didn't see your name listed because we, had, we couldn't, we listed Anna's name, but Teresa is definitely there. You can address any questions you want uh, to her as well. Why don't we uh, go to the two of you on that matter? What kind of training are, are Anna, does the, Anna and Teresa, does the training extend to kind of any med surge, uh, any, any area of the hospital? So, Madge, this is Anna, and yes, I think it does. I think that um, one of the things that we learn, and I, in the example I provided about Teresa's comment to us, which, which was, you know, this begins at my house, is, you know, care is not a unit, um, you know, in your hospital. Care is an experience that patients are having. And um, so if you're in need of behavioral health care and medical care at the same time, then as a health system we need to create a process and an experience that can accommodate both of those things. We, we, we have set up too much either or. You know, either you need medical attention or you need behavioral health attention. And, and um, this, is, or, this is about integration, um, which I think is a universal uh, concept that we're all, you know, working on, we're all struggling with. Um, and, you know, so we talked about how will we provide behavioral health care in the emergency setting and or even in the community, which is really what we were challenged to do by Teresa, and then how will we provide, you know, medical care in the psychiatric setting, and those are, you know, that is what we are actively working on, and um, we do use a lot of standard work, a lot of lean approaches and that sort of thing, but we also use and cannot do it without putting patients and their loved ones in the center of these conversations, because they're the ones that know what it really feels like to experience our system. So I would just hand off really quickly to Teresa to sort of add to that. 
you know, how we have take, how we have addressed that because we needed them to help us design those workflows. Thanks. So thank you. So um, we um, have addressed that by meeting weekly and, uh, you know, um, working with patients and, and families and our staff. Um, and um, we've joined, we've joined um, um, the psych emergency um, unit. I, I attend a, a weekly meeting actually from my home. I call in every week and, you know, I, I, um, I, I uh, join uh, the staff, the psych emergency staff meeting. Talk, talk, we talk through processes and procedures. And um, um, we have a weekly meeting that um, the psych, uh, the, the medical, psych, psychiatric medi medical director attends um, weekly, the, the, the nurses. The, um, so we have a, an inpatient unit that we also, our, our partners attend. Um, so we, we infuse the patient and family voice, the community voice into every layer of our system um, to, you know, and, and make sure, our, I'd say our three-legged school is really, um, Patients, families, and staff. We we make sure all three of those are considered in all in all of our um, our processes. There's a question that somebody's asking: How do you screen, or do you screen uh, for medical issues in the psych ED? Uh, yeah, we do screen. We have psychiatrists there 24 hours a day because it is an emergency room. So what we, it did really require us to put our psychiatric emergency staff and our medical emergency staff together. Um, the reality is, is if you're running, if you're running a general acute care hospital and you have an emergency department, your emergency staff are, are working on this, whether, you know, willingly or not willingly. Um, they're, they're encountering behavioral health emergencies. And so we found them to be really interested in helping um, lead improvements and really interested in helping to provide the kind of consultation so that the psychiatrist would feel really comfortable doing the MSEs. And we worked with the medical staff and, you know, worked on privileging and bylaws and all of that. It was a very long process, but we had commitment on all levels to do that. Let me ask, uh, thank you. Let me ask, um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go back to you, Richard. There's some, a bunch of questions about monitoring. Uh, you mentioned cameras. Uh, people, somebody's asking about sitters, other sorts of monitoring. Again, trying to get at that issue about safety, uh, preventing harm and autonomy and dignity and that kind of thing. Uh, thoughts about that? We try to minimize the involvement of uh, companions or one-to-ones. We think it's really not helpful to the patient or to the milieu, and it, you can't always minimize it. Sometimes if a person is really, really struggling, they need it, but um, in general, considering we have 100 patients a day on the inpatient side, uh, we might only have a couple of instances where somebody needs a one-to-one. -one. And uh, it really gets it gets to the issue, I think, of how the staff is trained and how the staff is acclimated to their role and how they're able to work with patients to convey that the patients are in a safe place. And I think to, that to the extent patients can really accept and support that concept, a lot of things flow from that. Um, I would give as an example um, the fact that despite the fact that 20, 20 of our patients every day are committed, and probably another 20 or, or so are, are fit that category but are there voluntarily. Our, our, our incidence of restraints and seclusion is practically nil. So for a facility that has that many patients, we continually run well, well under the national benchmarks for, for patients in seclusion and restraints. And, and I, I attribute all of that to the um, approach of this of the staff who really have have joined with us uh, to help make the patient feel as comfortable and as heard as, as they possibly could while they're in the hospital. Thank you. And Madge, this is Jim. Jim if I could ahead. just follow up on what Richard just said. I'm sure what Richard is talking about there is his staff takes a very preemptive and preventive approach. The early identification 
of information our patients are communicating to us that they're going through a little bit of a difficult time, the sooner you can get to that and respond to those concerns where patients are feeling both heard and understood goes a tremendous way towards not finding yourself in a crisis situation. Those crises are avoided multiple times every day in ways that look like just people treating people with kindness and respect, but with an attention to those early warning signs that the staff is engaged in partnering with uh, the patients on. Thanks. You said I, that beautifully, Jim. <laughs> I, I want to uh, acknowledge that um, having a WIHI on this topic feels and felt very important to us. We're going to come back to it. I see a lot of questions that we're probably not again, again, excuse me, going to get to today. And I apologize. I didn't see that you, you had the, we had a Q&A. We typically don't use the Q&A, so folks got going on that one first. So what we're going to do as we get to the topic, of the hour here. Um, first of all, you're going to notice on the bio slides that people have email addresses and you are more than welcome to approach certain people with particular questions. Uh, we'll also see if we can uh, get some emails going uh, from me uh, to our guests and maybe address some things that we can then post to the resource page uh, tomorrow on WIHI. Uh, there's an interesting question here about measuring, how uh, Richard started to talk about that in terms of benchmarks and also uh, when you're trying to improve in this area, what are you looking at and what does improvement uh, look like when it's documented. Uh, I suspect there's, you know, some of the themes in here uh, are probably uh, some of the things that would be looked at. Um, suicide attempts, uh, self-harm, uh, perhaps a need for restraint, etc. So that I can see that's a big issue. All of which takes me to back to Kelly, who started us off. And Kelly is the person who said she's putting together this expedition for hospitals. Uh, it starts in December. Um, and I'm sure Kelly has learned a lot again today about some of the things that are on people's minds. So I'm going to have John just briefly mention this program, and I hope it will be one of the ways, in addition to further WIHIs on this, you can learn more in the topic. John? All right, of course, Madge. Uh, thanks. Uh, the expedition will help you and your colleagues build the foundation for improving safety and for patients with mental health needs, as well as learning from the experiences of family advocates and representatives. You'll learn the importance of partnering with patients and their families, how to identify different areas of improvement with mental health care safety, and start to plan test change to begin patient safety improvement. It's called the Making Mental Health Care Safer in the Hospital Expedition, and it begins December 2nd, and it features some of the great experts you heard on today's WIHI. For more information, visit IHI.org slash expeditions. All right, thanks. Kelly, uh, just as a means of wrapping up here, uh, you probably, uh, you, well, everyone, of course, can download the chat transcript, and this gets uh, posted to the website tomorrow as well. Any thoughts about kind of some of the sort of interesting areas that you're seeing uh, that perhaps will be taken up with the expedition, but just in your own thinking? Well, I guess I would just say I'm, I'm heaving a huge sigh of relief today about how we've structured the expedition because I feel like um, everything that our guests have raised today have been of interest to people in a variety of ways. So I'm looking forward to learning more with them going forward, and I think it's a good signal for us at IHI to have so many people interested in this topic today, which pushes us to, to dig even further. Okay, very good. Final thoughts. Uh, I'm just going to go around the horn. I know we're getting to the top of the hour here, but Teresa, Anna, Jim, and then Richard, go ahead. So thank you so much. Um, and I, my final thoughts are just that um, Please don't forget about families like mine, and, and please um, don't be afraid to invite an angry mom into the room because we can see system pain, and we can't get past our own pain, and um, we'll help you redesign your systems. Thanks, Teresa. Anna? Um, final thoughts for me are to go and see and then stay there. Stay with your staff. Stay with the patients. Stay with the family members. These are – it's – Difficult work, but so worthwhile. Thank you, Anna. Jim? Yeah, I, I would echo that. First off, I, and I guess what I would close by saying, it's just so encouraging to be in a seminar 
where people are talking about these important topics and it's not, oh, we'll get around to that at some point. We're getting around to this now and it's so important for our patients and their safety. Okay, very, very good. Thank you, Jim. Richard, you get the last word. <laughs> There's also a zillion questions here for you about Princeton House, which I'll organize for you, I promise. I'll, I'll, be, happy to, I'll be happy to work with people around that. Um, I just think a lot of what we do is, is um, based on the people who choose to go into the work in the first place, and I think that those of us that have, have chosen mental health and addictions uh, as a as an avocation are already inclined to try to make things as safe as they can. So I think the the uh, the attempt to improve safety is one that certainly is generally supported by the people that work in the field. And I think it's really just a matter of, of continuing the conversation and, and getting it out in front of people and continuing to do the good work. All right. Well, thank you, Richard Wall, Jim O'Day. Kelly McCutcheon-Adams, Anna Roth, Teresa Pasquini. We did try to pack a lot in here. Uh, thanks for your patience. All your questions and interest. We're touching upon some things here that we do invite you to learn more about. Uh, check out the uh, information about the expedition. Check out some of these links. Check out our website tomorrow where our archive page for this show will be there with a lot of uh, some of the links we got in here and more. So thank you all for being such an engaged audience today. Next up on WIHI on October 23rd, we're going to be looking at hips and knees as in better care and better value for hip and knee replacement. Joint replacement is a very uh, important topic these days and lots of improvement going on there. So uh, we thank you for your time today. Thank you for checking out uh, the website tomorrow. Anything that wasn't clear at all, you can email info at IHI.org. There are some wonderful people who help make WIHI possible. Every show has a terrific panel that helps me plan it, so a big shout-out to all of them. The audience, of course, and then we've got John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Lily Stairs. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks for joining today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. <laughs>